This is the Daily Signal podcast for Tuesday, April 16th. I'm Kelsey Bowler. And I'm Daniel Davis. It's just April of 2019, but the campaign season is already gearing up, and with it, the prospect of even greater partisanship. The tenor of American politics really has changed, and Alexandra Hudson is actually writing a book on that very subject. She argues for why Americans need to rediscover the lost art of civility. She'll join Kate and I to discuss. By the way, if you're enjoying this podcast, please consider leaving a review or a five-star rating on iTunes and encouraging others to subscribe. Now, on to our top news. Well, the long-expected Mueller report will be released to the public on Thursday, according to the Justice Department, though it's expected to be heavily redacted. But Democrats have been demanding that it be released in its entirety. Last month, Attorney General William Barr wrote a four-page summary of that report to Congress, which said that Mueller found no proof that Trump or his campaign had colluded with Russian agents during the 2016 election. Barr also said that Mueller reached no conclusion on obstruction of justice, but that the report didn't exonerate Trump. Fallout continues after Congresswoman Ilhan Omar said some people did something in regards to 9-11 while speaking at a conference for the Council on American-Islamic relations last month. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said the U.S. Capitol Police and the House Sergeant-at-Arms are now conducting a security assessment to safeguard the Congresswoman, her family, and staff after she said she's faced threats following the remarks. Prominent Democrats, including Senator Elizabeth Warren, are standing by Omar and blaming President Trump for, quote, inciting violence, unquote, after he shared an edited video of Omar superimposed over images of the 9-11 terrorist attacks. We will never forget, the president wrote on Twitter. Democrats, including Pelosi, are demanding President Trump remove the video, but thus far, he's not relented. On Monday, Trump doubled down, tweeting, Before Nancy, who has lost all control of Congress and is getting nothing done, decides to defend her leader, Rep. Omar, she should look at the anti-Semitic, anti-Israel, and ungrateful U.S. hate statements Omar has made. She is out of control, except for her control of Nancy. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo met with Venezuelan refugees over the weekend in Colombia. Pompeo was on a four-day trip to South America aimed at ramping up pressure on Nicolas Maduro, the Venezuelan dictator holding on to power. Pompeo went to a migrant center in the border town of Cucuta, along with the Colombian president. Some 3.4 million Venezuelans have now fled the country amid hyperinflation and a collapsing economy. Pompeo urged Maduro to lift a military blockade that's been blocking aid coming into the country. He said the U.S. would use all economic and political tools at its disposal to see that Maduro is held accountable and that Cuba and Russia would pay a price for supporting him. Well, will Congress finally do something to address the illegal immigration crisis happening at our southern border? The answer is yes, if Senator Lindsey Graham has anything to do with it. The South Carolina Republican shared his immigration plan during an interview with Fox News on Sunday. The president has correctly identified uh, the crisis at the border. Now it's time to have a legislative solution. You need to change our laws for this to stop. Graham said he plans to introduce a new immigration proposal that would change asylum laws, fix the Flores settlement that says you can only hold a minor child for 20 days, and enable children from Central America to be sent back home. 
Graham is hopeful Democrats will work with him on this compromise and said he'll put together the legislative package once Congress returns to Washington, D.C. from its recess on April 29th. Well, a tragic scene in Paris shocked the world on Monday. The historic Notre Dame Cathedral was engulfed in flames. The cathedral's roof caught fire and raged into the evening, and then the spire and part of the roof collapsed. The cause of the fire is still unknown, but we do know that the damage is extensive. A spokesman for the cathedral said, quote, Everything is burning. Nothing will remain from the frame. End quote. French President Emmanuel Macron mourned the devastation in a tweet, saying, Notre Dame of Paris in flames, emotion of a whole nation, thoughts for all Catholics and for all French. Like all our compatriots, I'm sad tonight to see this part of us burn. End quote. Notre Dame is over 800 years old and one of the most iconic sites of Gothic architecture in the world. It's also home to countless works of art. Well, up next, Alexandra Hudson shares from her new book project on America's crisis of civility. Do conversations about the Supreme Court leave you scratching your head? If you want to understand what's happening at the court, subscribe to SCOTUS 101, a Heritage Foundation podcast breaking down the cases, personalities, and gossip at the Supreme Court. Well, we're joined now by a good friend of mine, Alexandra Hudson. She is a writer who lives in Indianapolis, a former employee for the Secretary of Education here in Washington, D.C. She is a published author in the Wall Street Journal, Quillette, Commentary Magazine, Washington Examiner, and of course, The Daily Signal. You may have noticed a piece that she wrote a few months ago reviewing a book by Senator Ben Sass. Alexandra, thanks for being back in, in the studio. Thank you for having me. So we're here to talk about a subject of a book that you're currently working to write, and I look forward to hopefully having you back once it's on the bookshelves. <laughs> um, but the book is about civility, and uh, you're, you're, you're pointing out uh, some of the, a lot of the problems in our current society and, and putting our day in context. Um, in the context of American history. Um, first question for you on this. I mean, I think a lot of people would easily admit that we live in a day where there's a lot of toxic rhetoric and, you know, bitter divisions that we maybe didn't feel were as severe 10 to 15 years ago. Um, what's changed in the last 10 to 15 years that's gotten it so bad? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a good question. So, it's true that it often feels like our current moment is uh, is the most uncivil, and and frankly, that's often because the, the our current moment is the one that we live in and, and are affected by the most, and and memories fade, and we weren't around, you know, at our founding era, 150 years ago, when uh, frankly there was just as much incivility, maybe different incivility, but it's it's probably wrong to think that our our current moment is necessarily the most uncivil in our in our in our uh, in American history, but. Um, there, there have been two things that have changed uh, markedly, especially in the last 10, 15 years, to your question. One is the prevalence of social media and the um, this kind of democratization of access to the Internet and these, these social networking sites that allow us to be more interconnected in a way that was previously impossible. And why that is important to the development of, of um, you know, the, the understanding that our or the feeling that our current moment is more uncivil than past eras is because this allows one person's offensive opinion to all of a sudden go viral around the world. And so there's more opportunity for one individual or one group of people to both offend and for people to be offended by all of a sudden these um, these ideas proliferating and gaining traction um, and um, just being spread instantaneously in seconds via by the Internet, these these social networking sites. 
So that's one reason that contributes to our current um, current incivility um, or feeling of incivility. And a second is um, it, it as our as our current moment um, has become increasingly polarized, which has been documented over the last you know few decades. It's not just you know, it just didn't happen overnight, but. It seems like our public leaders uh, care less and less about civility or respecting the fundamental humanity and personhood of our fellow citizens and our fellow, um, you know, fellow uh, Americans as as less of an ideal to strive for. And it becomes more and more kind of apocalyptic, you know, winning at any cost and having someone um, and, 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 and frankly, feeling justified in um, in attacking someone personally or something about their background. Um, so to, so to, to score rhetorical points with, um, you know, with one supporters. And so those are two notable differences, um, that I think, um, demarcate us from, from past eras and, um, and contribute to this feeling that, that, uh, that we live in the most uncivil era. And it's, it's certain, those are certainly, you know, problems that we should think seriously about. So on social media, it obviously, I mean, anyone who looks at Facebook or Twitter can see the incivility. But I'm curious as to why you think that is, because I know at Daily Signal, we thought that um, in our comment, comments boxes that if folks had to use their real name, they would be more civil. Mm-hmm. And so for a while, we had comments by Facebook where most people do use their real name. Mm-hmm. Um, it did not improve the comments. <laughs> so that sort of took out, although we have many wonderful commentators mm-hmm. who are probably furious at the annoying trolls. But um, <laughs> anyway, so obviously, even when using their real names, people seem to be comfortable on social media with a different level of aggressiveness than they would be in offline life. Right. And why do you think that that is? Um, that's a great question. And other outlets also have experimented with um attaching people's actual identity to commenting. YouTube has done that as well. And I think they had a little bit more success than you guys did. So sorry, uh, I'm sorry about some that. Of those yeah, exactly. Comments. That's I'm true. That's sure. true. Um, but I, I think the um, really salient uh, contributing factor to that is uh, the depersonalized depersonalization of, of communicating online versus in person. Like you're not looking at the person you're criticizing and calling horrible names in the eye and in the face. And it's easier to do that uh, when, when you're not looking someone in the eye and, and confronted with their humanity uh, and the fact that they're not so dissimilar from you. Um, and so that's that's and of course the internet is here and not going away and it's important to um, you know how, how for, for us to all think about that how do we keep the humanity of our you know political opponents and enemies on, on this new forum of public discourse the internet and Twitter and Facebook um, in mind when we are engaging in these different platforms and not find it easy to dismiss or, or neglect to recognize their humanity um, when we do engage in that way. Yeah, that's so true. But that, I mean, when you comment on whether it's a, a thread or some YouTube video, or, I mean. Goodness, YouTube. I mean, that's just a whole different realm of awfulness in terms of comments. Um, it's really it creates like a new, different kind of like a false world, right? Mm-hmm. It's not real. It feel. I mean, it feels like it's not real. It is two people on opposite sides of a computer, kind of uh, mm-hmm. you know, commenting toward each other, but they're not acting as though they're really doing that. It's almost like a fake forum. Um, so it really does distort our interactions. Mm-hmm. And it's. I have a friend who calls it. Uh, who's, who's written about it calls it keyboard courage that mm, we have the courage right. to to lash out at each other from behind a keyboard. But that actually, when you encounter someone face to face, even if they're super different and maybe even hostile, um, that there's a lot more of the, you encounter the humanity there. That's right. 
Um, but I want to ask you about how this relates to our democracy because you, you know your book is going to be about c- civility and American democracy mm-hmm. in particular. Um, why is it so important to have civility for democracy to actually work? Yeah, that's thank you for asking that question. Um, so my, my book does look at the intersection of the importance of civility to our uniquely American context in American history and particularly our American institutions, democratic institutions. And um, my argument is threefold, that um, civility is how we live out our uh, all men is created, create equal. Uh, all men are created equal, creed in our Declaration of Independence. So you know about social promoting social equality. That is um, central to to um, the American experiment. Um, it promotes tolerance. You know by by refocusing um, how, how the um, by refocusing on the you know our common our common humanity and and seeing that um, you know we have more in common with our fellow citizens more than that which divides us. Um, um, having that be what informs uh, a more tolerant um, uh, way of um, of in- engaging the world that the differences aren't things to be minimized but resources to be mined and and you know our strength our, our founding motto is a pluribus unum you know out of many one that our strength lies in our diversity and and um, culture and opinion um, and so and and thirdly that uh, civility is necessary to sustain our regime of, of limited government, that um, our government can only be limited if, if uh, citizens exercise self-governance. And when we, and, and that self-governance is, um, civility is, is self-governance in the everyday, at, at the, in, the, in the micro level, at the individual person-to-person level, which is the fundamental building block to our, our civil society, this important buttress um, and, and foiled to our, our governmental or democratic institutions. And so as we lose civility, um, you know, our, our democracy is threatened uh, because of these um, of th- these three ways. So do you think people, I, I think a lot of people say they want civility, mm-hmm. but then, you know, we've seen more and more cable news has become, you know, he says this, she says that, sort of almost like a fight. Mm-hmm. And the ratings seem to be doing well when they do that. That's right. So do you think people actually don't want civility? Yeah, that's a <laughs> that's a really good question. Yeah. Um, and I think you put your finger right on this sort of inherent tension um, between the social media era and the talk news show era uh, where it seems like the loudest, the most bombastic, the most inflammatory and controversial gets the most retweets, the most likes, the most, yeah. you know, hate clicks and shares. And that's the business model of our current our current media culture and um, and how that's like very much in tension with calm and reasoned, you know, civil discourse that that our democracy needs to to survive. And as we, you know, pursue truth and the common good together in a in a pluralistic society. Um, and so in terms of what we do about that, um, you know, the, the people that we should be following on Facebook and, and, and watching and listening to and reading like we don't know about them because they uh, don't do the kind of things that uh, that. Others, others do to kind of get the viral, um, the notoriety, and the um, and so. Uh, but there, there are there are good people out there. There are good, you know, s- scholars and, and commentators, and um, and so it, it there is this tension, um, and and it's it's it behooves us as, as readers to be edified by 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 seeking these people out, even though you know they're not kind of at the top of the the the, the you know twenty four hour news cycle, but. Um, uh, we should be encouraged that that they do exist and 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 support them with our <laughs> with our time and yeah. Well, do you think part of the problem might be that you know 
conflict has become a source of entertainment, mm-hmm. right? It's that we we really take for granted in our country that we can have conflict without having civil war mm-hmm. or violence. Yeah. And that that's not going to happen here. Maybe in some foreign country, you know, where they don't have the rule of law, but we just take it for granted here. And so we just, you know, uh, shoot tweets at each other and have, you know, internet conflict uh, with w- really with no fear of consequences. Mm-hmm. I wonder if we had real, like, you know, real uh, (laughs) scary kind of conflict in this country, if people would begin to consider civility as really an essential tool of politics. That's right. That's exactly right. That it it, it holds people, it holds, you know, you've got a fragmented society, Mm -hmm. people with different interests, people with different worldviews, and civility is kind of like grease on the wheels that Mm -hmm. helps things actually work. Yeah, and... I mean, it's it's a really good point that um, you know if we look at eras in in our in American history um, where verbal bi- violence didn't stay verbal violence for very for very long, and you know we right. were talking earlier about the caning of Charles Sumner on the Senate floor. Um, this is yes. just three years before the break outbreak of the Civil War, and, and Sumner was one of the, the he was a Republican, incredible proponent of um, the anti the, the abolitionist position. Um, and he, he did not mince his words in, in going after, you know, the character of the slave owner and, and how the institution of slavery was, you know, a weakness and antithetical to our democracy. And he, um, you know, spoke truth to power in that way and, and wasn't, you know, civil in the traditional sense. And I, I think it's important to distinguish between civility and politeness in that way, where civility, you know, respects person, someone enough to tell them that that they're wrong, you know, and doesn't patronize them by kind of smoothing over differences of agreement and, and opinion. Um, but, you know, Sumner suffered for that. You know, he right. was he was attacked from behind by um, by uh, Parson Brooks, um, a, a senator from North Carolina, I think he was. Yeah, I think a House member, but yeah. Oh, was it a House member? Yeah, just because I remember that struck me that it was so interesting a House member attacked a senator. Okay. Uh. The eternal, um, the eternal rivalry. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Not usually this far. Yeah. Um, but um, and and then so we have this outbreak of violence on the Senate floor. And then within a few years, we have our whole whole country at, um, you know, in, in hanging in the balance, essentially yeah. north versus south. And, you know, four 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 hundred fifty thousand Americans dead in the in the in the. Um, wake of that conflict. And so it is, you know, her, hist- looking at history in that way can both be an encouragement. You know, we've been here before. What can we learn from it? But also a caution, you know, like the, the stakes are are high. Um, they've been high before and they're, and they're high again. And we ought not diminish that. So I think um, some people, when you talk about civility, I think there are some people who would say, you know, civility is good, but what we need right now, maybe civility has been a protector of the status quo, mm-hmm. that they see civility as people who cry for civility are really just trying to protect the powers that be and that there are people <clears throat> that have been stomped on and they need their voices to be heard. And yes. so in order to break through that, uh, we, we need, you know, civility is good in general, but maybe right now we need someone who just kind of does straight talk and, mm-hmm. treats, you know, truth to power. Um, so... Obviously, in politics, you got to have room for that. Uh, you got to have room for someone who's going to bluntly jump in and speak the truth. Yes. How you know if you're speaking to a new politician, maybe a new member of of the House who's in town, <laughs> won't name names, AOC. Yes. Uh, you know, <laughs> who wants to be a straight talker? How do you think they should 
do that while also being civil? Is that impossible? Yeah, that's a great question. And before I answer that one, I want to just touch on something you mentioned briefly about how people think civility is, um, you know, a a means of keeping those in power and in control, like allowing them to stay in those positions of privilege. And uh, in, in, in my research of the history of civility, both in the American context and also kind of the broader world context, um, I think that what we suffer from is um, a case of misdefinition. And because, and, frankly, in, in the history of civility, there have been these these two distinct strands in how civility has been used. Um, and I, I, I'm familiar with this. I just reviewed a uh, history of um English civility, uh, civility in the English modern era for the Claremont Review of Books uh, by a uh, historian called Keith Thomas, which is an incredible book that anyone interested this, um, in this should take a look at. But, but basically, um, he, he you know, shows how civility was, uh, it's kind of a, actually starts in the Renaissance, where there's this rampant rediscovery of classical Greco-Roman texts, and um, which got people thinking, okay, you know, what, what is civilization? And how ought a... Um, how ought a person, a citizen um, of, a, of a civilization, conduct themselves? And it was a marked um, shift. And th- that's where we get this proliferation of, of, of etiquette and manners. Um, because prior to that, um, there was no real concept of civility. Like people ate with their hands and belched in public and, and you know, <laughs> defecated on the street corner. It didn't matter if you were nobility or not. Like everyone, um, you know, that was just the way things were. You didn't, you didn't feel any need to control your impulses in that way. And... Um, and so, so after the Renaissance, after this, mar- there is this marked shift, especially in the elite classes. Um, they begin to look down on on people that hadn't make, made that shift, you know, to to intentionally control their impulses and desires, and learn how to use a fork, and you know, chew with their mouth closed, and like all we get, we get a proliferation of all mm. these rules in different forms, um, and and civility gets used as a means of of distinguishing between social classes and between other countries, and we hear a lot about the civility and in, um, in the history of colonialism. Like, you know, people couching colonialism as, oh, we have to do a fa- we're doing a favor. We're to go civilize these, you know, quote unquote savages and these right, barbaric right. nations. So that's one strand of civility where it's, um, you know, used as a as a language that divides, yeah, frankly, between classes. Exactly. I've I've made this change. Like, you know, you are not like me and yeah. therefore I'm civilized and you are not. Mm-hmm. Um but there's this other strand of civility um, that is is more f- founded on our on our common humanity and the um, you know scholars like Erasmus of Rotterdam use the and a lot of the Renaissance Christian Renaissance humanists use the phrase humanitatis um, where and and this is in you know um, one thousand and one nights the character of Sinbad this is Odysseus um, where where we get we get these um, narratives these stories these um, ethics of of hospitality of kindness to the stranger um, someone that's not from your where, you know your your town or your place, but you're going to show kindness and benevolence and charity to them um, based on 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 your shared humanity, uh, and that and that you know strand leads right through um, to today, and 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 so part of my project is recovering that strand of civility and reviving it, and and disassociating like saying you know today we think of cotillion or class mar- uh, um, or dinner jackets or how to use a fork as civility, right. but let's just call those class markers. Let's not call sure. those civility at all, um, and recover a definition of civility that. Um, that is more useful, the one that you know is, is an ideal actually to strive for in our current moment. Interesting. So maybe if I can get you to just uh, turn to uh, the, the politician then who wants to just you know jump right into Congress That's and right. s- say what's true and who cares what you know I don't care who thinks badly about me. I'm just going to say what's true. Um, 
how how can that be done yeah. civilly? Is I, that even possible? I absolutely think it is. It's definitely possible to have a conversation with someone you deeply, deeply disagree with on first principles or on a myriad of policy issues and and um, but still, you know, not attack their family or their personal, you know, shortcomings or like these ad hominem attacks, like keep it elevated yeah. to the level of ideas and, and and the differences of policy and don't make it personal. Um, and, um, you know, modeling that, that fundamental respect for, um, your fellow citizens and our, our shared humanity, um, at, at that level is essential because it has, it does have a trickle down effect, whether, whether we want to realize it or not. Okay. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Alexandra. Thanks so much for having me. That'll do it for today's episode. Thank you for listening to the Daily Signal podcast brought to you from the Robert H. Bruce radio studio at the Heritage Foundation. Please be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or SoundCloud, and please give us a review or rating on iTunes to give us any feedback. We'll see you on Wednesday. You've been listening to the Daily Signal podcast, executive produced by Kate Trinko and Daniel Davis, sound designed by Michael Gooden, Lauren Evans, and Thalia Rampersad. For more information, visit DailySignal.com.